I, I like to say I re-engineer compliance programs to enable growth. And the reason why I say that is in that one simple sentence, it talks about change, re-engineering, compliance, which is doing the right thing, to enable growth, which is business-oriented. So the business people hearing uh, my pitch and saying that. What uh, do events, news, and culture tell us about how to be more effective at training and communicating? Whether you're in compliance, HR, risk, or general management, effective and ethical leadership requires two things, a consistent, dependable process, and eight specific mindsets that keep you real and salient to your audience. Welcome to the Eight Mindsets Podcast. We have got Eric Young in the Zoom room. Um, good morning, Eric. How are you doing? Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, oh, it's the, so great the to have you. I was going to say, the, the interesting thing about being not only on Zoom, but on podcasts, that people can't see us. So, but let's let's um, do a little bit more than just introduce ourselves, because I think everyone knows who we are, I'm guessing. Uh, but Jason, where are you sitting today? Uh, I, I'm sitting in my home near Princeton, New Jersey, in my home office. In your office, um, yeah. I'm, I'm facing each east and watching the sunrise over the New Jersey autumn. Nice. which believe it or not is quite lovely nice well it is I'm just the looking... garden state <laughs> well i'm just looking um i'm sitting in my kitchen and on my wall i have a picture of a truck which is my son's which was from his bedroom and i've got some photos of my family and i've got some flowers behind me and eric you are sitting tell me where you're sitting and tell me about the painting behind you Yes, I'm sitting in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, this is this is one of our, um, I guess, TV rooms, and uh, so we have a little desk. My wife and I have a little desk behind us, and that painting is uh, not one of my own, but it's just so peaceful. Um, we love horses. We love nature. We live next to a horse farm, so it's really merging two dimension with with reality looking out our window. So it's, it's, it's peaceful, especially after living in New York City for so long where it's just yeah. nothing but yeah. roaches well, uh, and lots of beeping and, and other things. Sirens. Sirens, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that's actually a really interesting place to start. Um, I'm gonna go off structure a little bit because Eric, in your book, you know, you talk a lot about the, the, the lifestyle of a compliance executive. You know, the long hours, the travel, the moving countries, uh, taking on a new project, just, you know, embracing yourself each time. Um, and, and, and I'd love to just, just before we, we kind of get into the bits we, we want to get into, just to start with, what's life like now? <laughs> you know, th this is kind of the question you ask Obama. You know, I've moved, I've, I've kind of gone from this kind of really, really hectic lifestyle, and now I kind of sit back. And, 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 and what's that done for you? What, what, what's this change from New York to Connecticut done, done for you? Sure. Well, one, uh, fresh air and trees and grass as opposed to concrete and noise from a sensory point of view, let's put it that way. In terms of work-life balance, the balance is, is better, but I'm also admittedly a, a workaholic. So even though I left the corporate world I jumped pretty much right into uh, starting the book because I have 
always wanted to write a book. So set up a lot of meetings uh, to interview people. I read a lot to do research around even how to write a book, where to start and what approach I, I would take, which I, I know we're going to talk about. And uh, being on LinkedIn. So in many ways, with the recalibration of the work-life balance, I was still busy and still having meetings, learning how to use Zoom, uh, learning how to do things on my own, which I had always delegated or depended on. But at the same time, I could sleep a little later, stay up a little later and enjoy quality time, much better quality time with, with my wife as well. So it's been good. It's been great. Yeah, that's that. That's really nice. I think it's really important. You know, the, the thing that I love about about your book, and I think I, I said this before, is that you humanize compliance because you talk so personally about your own experiences within the compliance world and, and also your own experiences just growing up. And, and we're going to talk about it. But what I wanted is I kind of <laughs> I, I want to just do a little bit of an overview of your career, um, because <laughs> for me, this really does set scene and I know that um within your book you talk a lot about baseball um and guys <laughs> the book that we're talking about today is declaration of independence how independent compliance officers and directors can hold management more accountable so and 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 in this book we 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 hear a lot about baseball I learn a lot about baseball so and, and just using this analogy so that Eric has worked in the major leagues and I think the minor leagues as CCO <laughs> um which he also refers to as the catcher. So if you're a baseball fan, you're going to understand that, or you can just read his book. So he started out in, I think, 1980 as a supervisory analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, um, and then went on to be the global chief compliance officer at J.P. Morgan Chase, global chief compliance officer at COCB, deputy chief compliance officer at UBS, Global Compliance Leader at GE, Chief Compliance Officer at RBS, Global Chief Compliance Officer at S&P, Chief Compliance Officer at BNP, you're now a professor at Fordham University, you are an artist, you're a, um, a lover of chess, tennis, and baseball. Oh, now, um, yeah, and Eric, there's not, wow. there's not a lot of small market teams in there. Okay. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's, you know, there's, there's not it's many. Like minor you, you made your tour of the majors, but it was kind of like, you know, Yankees to Dodgers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and P.S., my son's a catcher. So there you go. Excellent. So, so, so when, I mean, Eric, I knew you before I, I read about this and I read about you. Um, and, I guess had I not known you, I might have felt a little bit overwhelmed interviewing you. Um, but you are actually, because I do know you, you are one of the most, and truly one of the most approachable, grounded, down-to-earth people I've connected with on LinkedIn. And, and we've heard mm -hmm. that today, just, just listening to you speak. But what is it that has kept you and keeps you so grounded? I, I would say uh, my wife, because she keeps me honest. She keeps me grounded. Uh, yeah. She makes sure I don't go off on some big ego trip because um, there's always room to improve. And, and she reminds me of that. And the benefit of that is then you always learn, you always grow, and hopefully you learn from, from your mistakes. Second is uh, my dad, because he always taught us to work hard, but get along. So getting along means um, being able to 
interact with people. And um, because in interviewing people uh, for jobs, I would always look at them in three ways. One, are they incredibly bright? Are they, um, are they good with people and, and part of a team, which is the second uh, criteria? And then the third is, do they get results? And I'd ask the interviewee, um, which of the three are the most important? And some say being the brightest, others will say getting along. But it's actually the third because you need to be smart and get along to produce results, at least in the, the corporate world, because you can be incredibly friendly but have no substance or incredibly bright and be totally arrogant. So it's really the combination to be able to interact with people, be humane and not get it to your head. Yeah, I really get that. And I think that's, I think putting those together, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just thinking about what it would be like to be interviewed by you, Eric, but um, <laughs> as me. a young compliance officer. But um, ah. I think I, I love that. But I love what, I love what you said about, about how you put those together. You know, my wife has always taught me like, you know, you've always got to try, you know, strive. Um, and, and that second part is like, to achieve anything, you do need to get along. But, you know, it's not saying that, you know, it, 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 if you read your book and you, and, and, and you think about the corporate world in itself, it isn't always a world that gets along. Like, it's not always possible right. to get along with people. Um, yeah. And it's a bit of a leading question. Um, but what, what my, a kind of a follow-on from that is, well, you've worked at all these, as, as Jason rightly points out, major, mainly major leagues. But what was, um, and we call it the arc of a story. So what, what's kind of like, you know, what, what, what's always something that you're going to come back to in the story? But, but what was always something like a, a common feature in the organizations mm. you work with? Because obviously, I know that you know that these are important. But, but what did you see when you kind of, I'm going to say, not went into battle, <laughs> but you had to go in and kind of roll, roll it up your sleeves and, and get to work? Sure. Well, first, I, I was an economics major, so one of the first principles um, is maximize profit, uh, benefit the shareholder. Um, but as my career progressed, I also realized the human element that in order to achieve an aligned strategy, you got to get people uh, on the same page. So part of the reason of the book, despite the uh, different organizations, is common goals to maximize um, profit, but the question with each organization is, how do you get there? How do you maintain and enhance success as opposed to ultimately uh, failing because of hubris, because of culture? And that's where culture and strategy do need to work hand in hand. So there's a lot of commonalities, uh, regardless of industry, regardless of product or geography, and there's always risk. Um, and the question is, do firms treat these different attributes separately into silos, Put us, putting even aside the politics, but profit maximization, revenue, managing risk, which takes costs and, and investment, and then having that fabric or culture of uh, good ethical behavior to ultimately achieve that maximal uh, maximum return, uh, by, but doing it correctly, doing it ethically mm. with integrity. So mm. those are the common attributes. Mm. There's gotta be a fabric. Yeah, and so let's just, so, so 
I want to kind of break down your process because this is what we want to do. We, the, when, when, when we look at learning moments, we get learning moments when we actually go into the detail of what, what did you actually do? So um, in your book, you share the story of your parents as immigrants to the US and the obstacles that they face, which I know that you've learned a lot from. Um, and you say from that, you learn that anything is possible if you put your mind to it. So taking that attitude of anything is possible, what is your anything or what was your anything is possible process when you joined a new organization? Um, and you knew that, as I said before, you've got to roll up your sleeves and, and make that change. Um, like with BMP, when you were brought in, you had to build and transform the compliance program at the time. And you said you needed to remediate, rebuild and lead. Um, obviously, you're going to make waves. You're going to come in. They bring you in for a reason. Yeah. Yes. So. Yes. And. And so what is your process of getting all stakeholders or everybody that you need to work with you on your side quickly? Um, and I guess I'm just interested in just, just what, what, what the approach is, because I think that this is something that not only existing CCOs will be interested in, but more importantly, and I know that you allude to in your book, but aspiring CCOs will as well. Mm -hmm. so, well, with any organization, it does take time to uh, observe, learn from what and how things work, what works well, what doesn't work well. And so um, I asked for resumes of everyone in my staff. I interviewed uh, through informal meetings, uh, my direct reports, but also their direct reports. I met with business uh, executives, operational executives as to how they define compliance and what they expected from the department, but also what their uh, own roles should be and, and, and would be in, in the new organization. So it takes not going in like gangbusters and just driving change right away, but absorbing, digesting, and then ultimately recommending, socializing, and executing with buy-in the way forward. Now that's a lot easier said than done. I also read, um, and I highly recommend Michael Watkins' First 90 Days book, which is all about how to um, join an organization or if you're promoted internally, all these different uh, easy to read case studies around um, what to do, but more importantly, what not to do. And, and I, I've applied it my own way throughout my career. Sometimes I'll crash and burn, other times I'll succeed, but it's lessons learned from those mistakes. And every institution is, is different culturally and otherwise. So it's a matter of adapting because one size doesn't fit all. I think it's consistent with your eight mindsets as to do it yourself, but sometimes that has to be customized that still preserves the the heart of the organization. You know, I, I love that. I love that you raise the eight mindsets. And I was just thinking, you know, Jason, the great thing about interviewing people on the podcast is that you get to hear in their own words what we talk about. And one uh, of the things, Eric, I, I guess you've put into your own words is something that Jason and I refer to as being called as being learner centric. That what's in it for you? So rather than telling somebody what you want them to know in training or telling somebody what you want them to do is asking them and, and getting them to share in their own words what their work is, 
what they yes. want to be doing and what they think is possible because it comes from them rather than comes from you. So I, I love that. I love that. Um, Absolutely. That's so cool. That's so cool. Um, and Jason, I know that you've got a lot to kind of speak about there in terms of that on entrepreneurial spirit in the first 90 days. Yeah. 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 It's, um, there, there's a, we were, we were, we were chatting about this before the tape was rolling, but, um, Eric, in your, you know, sort of like extremely early on, pretty much the first lesson, and and uh, we'll talk more about the book later. But but uh, for those who haven't read it, part of the structure is that uh, Eric, uh, in the first part of the book, uh, talks about uh, incidents and incidents in his life or in his career, um, and then relates lessons from them for compliance. And your very first, in your very first lessons learned, um, you talk about how good compliance and ethics officers persevere regardless of obstacles, challenges, pressure, discrimination, or the perception of impossibility. And I read that and I thought, mindset of an entrepreneur, dude. Um, uh, what, what, what do people do who start their own ventures? Um, they persevere, they overcome obstacles, um, they serve their customers. And I kind of heard you saying, look, as a compliance officer, you're kind of starting a venture. <laughs> you're going off down, you're going off yes. down a path. You're creating something new. You want to create something unexpected. Um, and you want people to adopt it. Right. I did. I didn't, I didn't make the iPod for no one to buy it. Right. <laughs> I made the iPod to change the industry. Right. Mm -hmm. yes. um, uh, um, do you, you know, is that the parallel? Yes, uh, because I, I like to say I re-engineer compliance programs to enable growth. And the reason why I say that is in that one simple sentence, it talks about change, re-engineering. Compliance, which is doing the right thing, to enable growth, which is business-oriented. So the business people hearing uh, my pitch and saying that, uh, it resonates with them because we all want to grow, particularly business people in terms of profitability or expansion or whatever the case may be. And ultimately that boils down to doing the right things is entrepreneurial, as you say. And I wrote an article a few years ago around comparing CEOs, the attributes of successful CEOs and chief compliance officers. And you know what? There were a lot of similar attributes in terms of listening, uh, but making your own decisions, being independent, being fearless, taking risks responsibly. And I said, wow, that's, that's the same thing as being a chief compliance officer. So they are not mutually exclusive. And unfortunately, people don't often understand that or want to understand that. They just think compliance is... Um, a back office um, scapegoat in, in many ways. And we see that all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, um, good. Yes, yeah, I was gonna say, Jason, I wanted to speak to Erica about, about the book, but before we do, did you wanna, maybe, maybe it's a good idea for, for you to start talking about um, our methodology and getting some feedback on it. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, the, Particularly because this idea of of being entrepreneurial 
weaves its way all the way through the eight mindsets. The first mindset is the mindset of the entrepreneur. And that's actually the way I think of it, the last uh, mindset um, that it's, you know, it goes circular and you start with, um, I'm going to be resourceful. I'm going to make what I can out of whatever few resources I have. I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to take lemons and I'm going to make a solar power battery. Um, <laughs> uh, but it ends with entrepreneurship in terms of the idea of, resilience, perseverance. Um, another one of the premises behind the eight mindsets and sort of a base premise is in the modern compliance world, married with the modern communications world, um, compliance departments, and this goes also for HR, for legal, for risk. Um, you have so many different things to talk about. Um, divided into so many different messages because you're trying to be true and salient to each of your audiences, each of the, the sort of groups in the workforce. Um, and so many different channels that you can fill with that between in-house, out-of-house, social, Slack, training, LMS, right? Um, our conclusion is in that world, you are left with needing to do more yourself. The DIY become, has become a reality, a necessity. Um, sure. You can't possibly outsource all of it. And in fact, you'll be more effective if you don't outsource all of it. Um, sort of it's a, it's a um, you know, you must, you should, and you can uh, make more messages yourself. In your experience as a compliance officer and thinking about compliance to write the book, you know, does that, does that ring true to you? Would you amend to that premise? Sort of what's, what's your reaction to, to that whole idea? I completely agree. Uh, I've always felt philosophically and practically that uh, people learn by doing because then it builds into their muscle memory as to what and how to do it in which sequence. Because if you just listen to someone else telling you uh, what's important, what's not, or through some type of uh, audio or visual training session, it'll go in too often one ear and out the other. Uh, people have many priorities and otherwise forget, but if you learn by doing, uh, then it becomes part of your just day-to-day -day activity. Um, some of it's Pavlovian, as I like to say, uh, in terms of compliance training and as, as you um, reinforce in, in your eight mindsets, it's very much reinforced um, learning because it's repetitive to the point where a business person will salivate wanting more, so to speak, compliance training. Um, it also goes to accountability because compliance often becomes too much, I call it the crutch for the person that uh, is temporarily injured. And if you rely too much on that crutch, which is the second line of defense compliance, the first line muscle starts to atrophy because you're not using it. You're not trying to walk again, so to speak. And uh, then the first line business, as we often, too often see, becomes overly dependent on the second line to do their work and more importantly, end up blaming because um, the business didn't learn because they didn't do and they become overly dependent on something else. What we become their crutch, so to speak. 
you're, you're saying that Eric and, and what I was thinking of, you know, was, was if you spend too much time focusing on launch angle to hit the long ball, uh, then when they put on the shift, you can't lay a bunt down the third baseline. Right, exactly. um, <laughs> yes. so, sorry, Nicole. I just, you know, the baseball mind. It's, um, it's, I, I knew, I knew it was going to happen tonight. Yeah, you can <laughs> see, okay. you can, you can, you can okay. see it turning. That's okay. Um, yeah. You, you've, Eric, you've, you've talked about, the job of a chief compliance officer going from being like, you know, I'm, I'm running a, you know, a network TV, uh, one channel, uh, to, to now I'm running a cable network. Um, those are very familiar words, uh, with any eight mindsets, um, and what we call the mindset of a, a program executive. But, but I'd love to hear you sort of elaborate on that reality for compliance officers. Well, part of it was when we were talking about my approach in, in writing the book, what's the, the best way, not only to write a book, but what's the message that I want to give, uh, particularly because like network TV and the compliance industry, there weren't a lot of choices. Uh, compliance was run a certain way, but over time, suddenly everyone's a compliance officer, uh, even though they've never necessarily um, executed the uh, elements of a, an effective compliance program. They, they like to talk about compliance and, suddenly, and because compliance is, is popular and unpopular at the same time, if you know what I mean, um, everyone has a, a book or a view in terms of what works, what doesn't. So suddenly like cable TV, there's so many choices. So it can be overwhelming for the audience for the true compliance officer that lives with the risk, has to execute within very short uh, deadlines, what's the right answer? And so that's why I wrote the book in terms of personal experience and lessons learned, because at least from my vantage point, it's one way to succeed. Now, that's not the way, it's a way or the way. So it still gives people choice using the TV analogy um, now you can stream, you don't even need cable TV, but you still have a choice, but hopefully it's the right choice. Even the decision to be a compliance officer um, is not forever, but um, you still have choice. Very cool. Um, that's very cool. Thanks, Eric. And that, and that means so much for us as well, really, just to get, I guess, that that feedback and that, um, I, I guess, analysis as well. So thank you for that. Um, now, Eric, um, we're going to talk about your book. Um, but before we do, let's just let's just take a step back and just say that um, it was you, you stopped working. Was it a year and a half ago, a year ago? February 2020. OK, yeah. So yeah, just over a year and a half ago now. And since that time, you've written a book. It's been on Kindle. is It's in hard copy. It's now on Audible. Yes. You are, you are, I believe, one of the. And I know lots of people talk about books or write books, but not proper books. You are one of the one percent of people who didn't just write a book, but properly published and promoted it. So, um, Thank you. you are, you are. Well, it's you know hats off to you you know you didn't just write it but you're actually you're, you're one of the few that actually did it so <laughs> so uh, 
so what I'd love to hear is, and, and I, I know that you told us that you're a hard worker and I know you're a hard worker. Um, I, I, I see you because I obviously we're in different time zones. So I see you up in my time zone. So, you know, I, I know what a hard worker you are. But what I'm really interested in is I'm interested in channeling kind of that work and the way that that you would go to work in a in a corporate job where there's accountability, there's boards, there's papers, there's expectations, there's teams, there's people always needing something from you. So you just produce output, yeah? Because I know I know what I'm like when I have, I'll just get this done, I'll just get that done. Now, what I'm less good at is doing something that is completely away from client work. And Jason, you know this, yeah? Nothing to do with client work, nothing to do with family commitments. It's just things to do with my own process. I'm producing something. I don't know what's going to happen with it. I'm producing it for myself. And then we'll go from there. So that to me is a really big difference to this kind of the workhorse that we all have in us, within us. So I'd love to hear about, about your creative process. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to hearing about people's creative processes. You, you know, you've got the people that work all night and sleep all day and the people that get up at 5 a.m. and go for the walk or for the run. So I'd love to hear about what you do um, consist, or, or what you've kind of built yourself to do <laughs> to change the way that you're working. Um, yeah, and just and talk us through it. Break it down. So in terms of... Uh conceiving, writing, producing, and then marketing the book. That's that's a process. So it's a sequence and compliance officers and, and anyone for that matter need to think in that engineering mindset of, of um, how do you get from point A to point B, et cetera. So, and it's planning ahead in that regard. In terms of uh, my book itself, I had always wanted to write a book and uh, now I had the time, so to speak. February, March of 2020, but other things are going on as well. So I created an LLC because I want to, going back to uh, Jason's points of being an entrepreneur, what did I need to do to launch a business? Um, an LLC was important. I was uh, just beginning to teach at Fordham Law where I had to know more than the students. So I actually had to start reading again around the, the theory of, of, of uh, compliance and laws and um, duty of loyalty, et cetera. Mm. Um, so it was actually all happening at the same time, but it was excellent ingredients, if you will, in uh, producing the book. Mm. Then stage-wise, it was a matter of, okay, how do I write a book? So I actually bought a book about how to write a book. Uh, which was interesting, uh, but I didn't take it as gospel. It was just good guidance, guardrails, if you will. I wanted to interview lots of people. And um, I think I spoke with you and, and many, many others with, from different disciplines, whether they be compliance, legal, board members, recruiters, as to mm. skill sets, as to what they believe compliance was, just like speaking to the, the business heads. Ultimately, they said, look, Eric, it's your book. This is what uh, what you want to say. And I found a good uh, editor, ultimately determined the approach, which was part one, the personal story, knowing who your audience should be as to who the readers will be. Who do you really want to teach at the end of the day? And part one where uh, I, I decided would be 
current and future compliance leaders, the millennials, the Gen Zs, if you will, as well as existing compliance officers. Part two, um, and my editor and I collaborated very closely as to just brainstorming, what's, should it be two books? Should it be two parts? Uh, we decided to take this approach of flip-flopping part one and, and part two, which would be unique, but it was a very different audience and therefore probably a different tone, if you notice, around more of a factual economic textbook, but in a way with a, a common theme or arc, as you say. Um, the editor has published uh, before. I self-published, uh, do it yourself, so to speak. And um, he knew what and how to get things onto Amazon, Kindle, et cetera. So that made my life easier, mm -hmm. uh, but it still took decisions uh, by me as to what and how to do it. Um, and then finally, in terms of promoting the book, I always knew I wanted to write it. So I started marketing it on LinkedIn, even though I didn't call it marketing, yeah. they were just posts mm -hmm. before I actually wrote a single word. And you might remember, I had a picture on my uh, laptop of, of uh, me as the little boy and the title of the book at the time, but it was all blank after that because the question was, what was I gonna say? And it took a long time to figure out what to say and how. Mm, I love, so, and I love that. And that has, mm. and that's so useful. That's such a great process. And, and I wanna dig deeper. So just, just take us a typical day writing the book so so what would a typical day look like to you i i'm a, a morning person so i like to mm -hmm. wake up early it's very peaceful my wife would still be asleep um and i would focus on a chapter um what did i want to say but at the same time and i like your reference to arcs because it's a common theme throughout the uh, episodes, if you like, if you will, like in a TV series, there's always a common character, if you will, or mm. or challenge. Um, mm. and, it, and compliance, of course, is a challenge. But I've learned the hard way um, what writer's block really is and means. Um, so sometimes you have to put it away. But because I had two parts, if I was stuck on part one, I would switch to part two and vice versa. And that enabled me to take a step back from one part or the other to um, get a fresh perspective. And some days it's very creative, other days not. And then finally, um, just like my artwork, I would listen to uh, Ave Maria, which is, you know, of course, one of my favorites. And there's many, many versions, but it just creates peace. Um, and relaxation, if you will. It's, like, I guess, a type of meditation, but it clears the mind. So this way, you know exactly what to say and how to say it. And of course, it takes a lot of editing on top of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Wow, that, that's, I can totally picture that, Eric. <laughs> it, and it, it, uh, uh, it rings very true. Um, uh, but but the thing that's not familiar is you, you got the book. <laughs> a lot of us have books in our heads. You got it done uh, and you got it out. Um, and it's and it's terrific and very valuable. Um, and and we want to take sort of a deeper dive in into the book and sure. the lessons you see for compliance in the book and how they fit in with the idea of of 
uh, doing it yourself and, and being entrepreneurial in the other eight mindsets. Um, but for the, for the sake of, of our podcast listeners, we're going to do that in part two uh, and, and wrap, wrap this edition up um, and then come back in part two and, uh, and talk more about uh, Eric Young's book. But Eric Young, thank you for joining us for this part of the conversation in the Eight Mindsets podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Well. I very much enjoyed it. And when we come back in part two, not only will we talk about the lessons in Eric's book, Declaration of Independence, but Eric has a choice for the compliance anthem of the week, and it's excellent. <laughs> and so, uh, dear listener, your job as you listen to part two is to try to think ahead and figure out, hmm, what have I heard? that is a hint to this compliance anthem of the week. So please join us next time for part two of our interview with Eric Young. Wow, I don't think I can wait till next week, but we're going to have to. All right then, guys. So thanks very much for Eric. And it's really, is it such a joy having such seasoned professionals on the show and people who've got so much passion about what they talk about. So look guys, talk about passion. Um, Jason and I have a lot of passion. We also have a lot of faith in the ideas and leadership of the eight mindsets um, and our eight mindsets cohort. So consider joining. Go to the www.8mindsets.com um, and there's a whole page devoted to the cohort. So if you sign up, we're going to provide you with access to our complimentary course, which provides you with our bi-weekly recordings of our eight mindset sessions, including the latest one, which is on the power of the doodle. We're also going to send you um, a heap of other stuff that we don't share with people outside of the cohort. Um, there's a load of resources and ways to learn about how to produce effective in-house training. So you can find out how you can be amongst professionals that we are proud to coach and mentor. So go to the site and take a look. Um, and we really want to support you to produce your own effective and learner-centric training or to have us help you make that training. So go ahead, check it out. Well, the 8 Mindsets podcast is a production of the 8 Mindsets Initiative. Copyright 2021, Create Training, LTD and Lead Good LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs> All right, guys, and that's a wrap.